This message is brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about our ministries, we encourage you to visit us online at tabernaclehickory.org. That's tabernaclehickory.org. You can find our sermons on a number of platforms, including Apple iTunes, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. We trust that God will use this message to speak to your heart. Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1. Now, uh, we are experiencing in uh, our church and uh, across our nation, we are experiencing uh, a time of new beginning. And for lots of people, new beginnings, a new school year is upon us. And with that new school year comes lots of, of new beginnings. Some people are beginning a new grade. I've got four children, and they're all beginning a new grade this year. That's a positive thing, isn't it? And uh, beginning a brand new grade. I've got one that's beginning middle school. That's a frightening thing, and it's disturbing, and, oh, I can't even imagine it. But the Lord's good. And uh, a number of parents are gone this week because their young person uh, are beginning, perhaps beginning their collegiate career or beginning a new year in their collegiate career. New beginnings. Lots of new beginnings. Some have graduated. They've graduated from college, and now they are beginning their career. Welcome to life. Lots of new beginnings. Can I say to you that beginnings are, are a thing that we don't think about much, but we are experiencing new beginnings constantly. We have gathered together on the first day of this week to begin together a brand new week. New beginnings. Something must end before something can begin. And so we say goodbye to last week. We look forward to the prospects of this week. Every hour begins a new hour, and an end, the hour before that has ended. New beginnings. The Bible actually has to say much about beginnings. I was thinking about this for a number of reasons, and God spoke to my heart, and He said, the beginning, the beginning does not get enough attention in my own personal life. I've heard people say very often that it doesn't really matter how you begin as long as you end right. Now, I want you to know that I'm grateful. Every person in this room is grateful for the forgiveness, and the grace, and the restoration that only God can provide. And no matter where you begin, you can end right with the Lord. But beginnings are important. And I'm here to say that it does matter how we begin. Lots of new beginnings in life. Some person once said that the very best place to start is the beginning. That makes sense, doesn't it? And when we look at the Word of God, we find that that is where God starts. He begins in the beginning. There was a young lady, her name was... Kim, Kim Linehan, and Kim Linehan was a, an Olympic swimmer on the U.S. national team, and she, for a period of time, she held the 15-meter freestyle world record. Her workout regimen was brutal. As a matter of fact, she would swim anywhere from 7 to 12 miles a day working out. Someone once asked her, 
and all the working out that you do and all the labor and all the effort, what is the most difficult thing you do in training? And she did not hesitate. She said, the most difficult thing that I do is to get in the pool. Start. Begin. Where do we begin? We begin where God begins. It's interesting to me that as the Word of God opens, God does not begin with theory. He does not begin with philosophy. And He could have easily done those things, but He does not. He very simply goes to the beginning, and He says, look at it, please. In the beginning. Now, here's what we're tempted to do. Because we're so familiar with the book of Genesis and because we're so familiar with this first chapter, we, we must fight the urge to simply run on to the creative acts of God. In the beginning, oh, the heavens and the earth and what was made on day one, what was made on day two, how about day three, four, and five? Hey, let's go quickly to day number six when God creates the crown of his creation in mankind. And let's hurry through the book of Genesis, this book of beginnings. But I think we do a disservice to the Word of God. If you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, I'd like you to take your pen and mark these words. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. You see, I, I'm afraid that we can rush past what the book of Genesis is all about. Everything begins and ends with God. I heard Pastor Clarence Sexton say that years ago. I do not fully understand that statement, but I'm trying to understand it. Everything in life begins and ends with God. He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. He's the first and the last. He is, Jesus Christ is the author, the originator, the beginner. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. You see, everything in life begins and ends with God. Years ago, there was a teacher, and he was speaking to his class on the idea of time management. And as an illustration, in his lecture, he reached behind his desk and he pulled out a large glass jar. And then he pulled out some large stones, and he began placing these stones inside the large glass jar until... He could no longer fit any stones in there. And he said to the class, is the jar full? And they said, well, yeah, the jar's full. He said, no, it's not. He reached behind his desk and he pulled out a, a small container and it had small stones in it. And he poured those small stones into the container and shook it and the small stones filtered down between the empty spaces that the large stones left and he said, now is it full? Well, they were a little gun-shy, you can imagine. And one finally said, well, yeah, it's full. He said, no, it's not full. He reached behind his desk, and he pulled out a container of sand, and he began to pour the sand in, and he was shaking it back and forth and watching the sand run down through all of the crevices left behind, the open spaces left in the, the small rocks. He asked again, is it full? Well, now nobody would answer, as you can imagine. And he said, it is not yet full. He reached behind his desk and he pulled out a gallon of water and he poured the water into the container and the water 
began to run, run down and the sand was soaking up the water. And he continued pouring the water until it actually overflowed out of the glass jar. And he said, now it is full, but what is the lesson to be learned? One bright young lady in the back of the room raised her hand and she said, well, sir, we're talking about time management. So the thing that I learned is there's always time for more work. And he said, that is extremely inaccurate. You only have 24 hours in a day. You only have seven days in a week. You only have so much time on planet Earth. So your answer is inaccurate. There's not always more time for work. Here's the great lesson, and don't miss it. The great lesson is, put the big rocks in first, or everything else will crowd them out. And I'm afraid in our Christian walk, there are so many things that God says that should be first, and everything else tends to crowd it out. In the beginning, where do we start? It's so simple. In the beginning, God. May God in heaven help us to put into our lives the things that he says, these are the first things. Turn with me, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians and chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning reading our, in verse number 1. Paul has so many things to say. Paul, of course, used by God to pen much of our New Testament. Paul writes of doctrine. Paul writes of Christian living. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless... Ye have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The very first thing that Paul says, the very first thing that I ever spoke to you about was not Christian living, it was not how to behave yourself, Paul writes to Timothy later on. He says, this is how you're supposed to behave yourself in the church of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul has so many things to say, but he says, I want you to know that I never once failed to deliver to you, first of all, the most important thing, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I wonder, are you sitting here today and you've run past, oh, you know how to behave yourself, you know some things about this idea of Christian living. Perhaps you're a moral person, but you've never come face to face with the true gospel. What is it? What is the gospel? He gives it to us here. It's very simple. Go back to verse number one. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. Go to verse number two, by which also you're saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin, saved from the penalty of sin, saved from eternal hell. Verse number four, verse number three, I delivered unto you first of all that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, 
and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scripture. What is this simple message of the gospel? It is this. It is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, our sins, not his own. He was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. It's a simple message. By the way, it's the greatest news that any person has ever heard. And before it is great news, there must be bad news. The bad news is that every person, man, woman, boy, and girl, is separated from God because of their sin. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden disobeyed God. Sin entered into the bloodstream of mankind. And now every one of us are sinners by conception. We are sinners because our parents were sinners. And we are sinners by choice. We choose to do things that are against God. And there is a penalty for sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but that's certainly part of it. But physical death is followed by eternal death, ever dying and never dead in an awful place called hell. God loves us. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth and he paid the debt of sin that we owed. A debt that we could not pay. The simple gospel. The bad news is that we are sinners. The good news is that Christ is a greater Savior than our sin is to us. And so I ask you this morning, not are you a church member, not are you a good person. By the way, let me just pause right there and, and put this question to rest once and for all. You're not a good person. I'm not a good person. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. I did not ask, do you do good things? I did not say, were you baptized? I did not ask, have you gone through confirmation? The simple question that Paul the Apostle would ask is this, have you believed the gospel? Have you ever seen yourself as a sinner? Has God in heaven, by His Spirit, ever convicted your lost soul and shown you that you have a need of a Savior? And have you ever come to Him in simple faith and admit, what you say of me is true and what you say of you is true. I am a sinner, you are the Savior, and I am putting my faith in what you did for me. If you ever watch baseball, you see someone stand to the plate. The pitcher delivers the pitch. The batter swings and makes contact with the ball. And he runs to the dugout. And then he runs to third base. And then he runs over and he high fives the center fielder. He runs to the visiting dugout, shakes hands with a few guys, and in the process of all of that, the ball is fielded, thrown to first base, and the umpire says, you're out. And us watching from the stands or watching on the TV would think, that is the most ridiculous thing I have ever seen in my life. Let me tell you something much more ridiculous than that. Somebody thinking that a work of the flesh or good deeds could ever merit eternal life. Paul said, if you run, you must run lawfully. Look here, please. you got to go to first base. What is first base? It is believing the gospel. 
If you've never believed the gospel, may I say to you, the rest of what I'm going to say does not apply to you. You can strive to be a good person. You can be religious. And may I say to you that most of our world is very religious, but they are very lost in their religion. And Christ did not come to give us religion. He came to be a Savior. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 13, Paul says, You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. You see, it was not lost on the Apostle Paul the importance of the gospel. He knew the order of it all. And Paul said, it is first. You know, Matthew chapter 7, one of the most, one of the most heart-wrenching chapters in all the Bible. Jesus said, in that day, many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils. And in thy name, in thy name, we've done many wonderful works. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. You never knew the person? How do you not know the person that prophesied in your name? How do you not know the person that did works in your name? And he says, because you did not do the first thing. You did not trust me as your Savior. And if you're here today and you've never come to know Christ as your Savior, let me say, that is the greatest first. That is the greatest first you will ever experience. There is the first of salvation. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. I give you, secondly, the first of cleansing. Matthew chapter number 23 and verse number 25. Actually, back up, if you would, verse number 24. The Lord Jesus Christ is speaking here. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so... Ye also outwardly appear to be righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our father, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets, Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? I find it very interesting and moving that Jesus speaks his harshest words to the most religious crowd. When he's dealing with the harlots and the publicans and the sinners, what does he offer to them? He offers them grace and pardon and forgiveness. Why? Because they are people who stand in need and they know it. But to those who are righteous in their self-righteousness, he uses some harsh language. Vipers, you're a snake. You're a whited sepulcher. You paint the outside of the tomb, but you are full of death 
and decay and disease on the inside. I'm convinced that if Jesus Christ could stand in this pulpit today and he could preach a sermon, he would not preach to Hollywood. He would not preach to that crowd that promotes abhorrent behavior and alternative lifestyles, as they call it. If Jesus Christ could stand in the Tabernacle Baptist Church and he could preach a sermon, I think he'd preach to a bunch of hypocrites. Because we know how to look, we know how to speak, we know how to act. The prophet of God sends, God sends him to the house of Jesse and he says, I've got a king. I've got a king. I've got a, a person that's going to do my work for me. And Jesse's sons come by one by one. And outwardly, outwardly the prophet of God says, got to be him. And God said, you're looking at the wrong place. And can I say, church, we're looking at the wrong place. I can stand in a mirror, I can impress myself, but God in heaven is not looking at what I'm wearing and how I'm behaving. He's looking at my heart. He's looking where nobody else can see. And by the way, he's looking when nobody else can see. What must I do first? Put on a suit of clothes and talk like a Christian? No. Clean the inside of the cup, Christ said. Get the death and the decay out of the tomb. Stop painting the outside and do something about the inside. That's first. Look at it, please. Verse number 26. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first. Can I say to you that when we start cleaning we'll stop being so blind to our own sin. You see, we can deceive other people, but the, the greatest tragedy is this, we can deceive ourselves. And I can start thinking of myself more highly than I have to think of myself because I'm giving attention to things that God does not even pay attention to. And he says, you're a blind Pharisee. You don't even see your own faults. What's the first thing to do? Clean the inside. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who said, the more holy a man starts to live, the less holy he sees himself. The first of salvation, do you know Christ? I mean, do you truly know Christ as your Savior? Number two, the first of cleansing. Where do we begin? May God help us to begin in the heart. Number three, turn with me to Numbers, rather, I'm sorry, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Stay here in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter number 8. I give you thirdly, the first of giving. The first of giving, 2 Corinthians chapter number 8. We are given in the Old Testament and in the New this principle of giving. In Numbers 28, and verse 11, the Bible says, in, in the beginning of your months, 
In the beginning of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering unto the Lord. Two young bullocks, one ram, seven lambs of the first year without spot. So we have this idea in the Old Testament where God says, in your giving to the Lord, I want you to, to do it first in the beginning of months. If you fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2 in the New Testament context, Paul says, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay in, uh, by him in store as God hath prospered him. And I think when we, when we, when we talk about this idea of giving, we, we limit it to monetary things. And may I say to you, that as God has blessed us and as God has prospered us out of a heart of gratitude and love, there's no doubt that we need to give that back to the Lord. But let me show you something that I find extremely interesting in, in Scripture. You're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at verse number 5. Uh, I'm sorry, back up to verse number 1. We'll get the context. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Paul says in verse number one, Brethren, we do to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. He's giving a testimony of these people, the churches of Macedonia, and how they did not have much, not much of this world's riches. As a matter of fact, there were great needs in the church of Macedonia, great financial needs. And Paul said, they went above and beyond, not only of their own means, they went beyond their means, and they had a, a gift that they wanted to give to us. And Paul said in verse number four, praying us with much entreaty. Can you, can you play this out in your mind? The churches of Macedonia, Paul knows that these are not wealthy people. Paul knows that they don't have much. And yet they give such a generous gift to Paul, and Paul says, I cannot take that. I can't receive that gift. It's too much. You need it. And with much entreaty, they say, no, Paul, we want you to have it. You're God's man. You're God's servant. You're getting the work done. We want you to have this. But don't miss what Paul says. Verse number five. And this they did not as we had hoped. I'd imagine Paul was a little bit embarrassed to take this gift from them. And this they did not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. May I say, Christians, we need to be ashamed of ourselves when we throw a few dollars into an offering plate and say, I'm giving. Are you giving? Oh, I'm a giving person. Yeah, I put that check in there every week. Listen, that's great. Praise God. We should. But what about giving ourselves to God? Have we fulfilled our Christian duty because we live in the most prosperous land in the world? We have more than any other nation, and we take out of our abundance 
a little bit and give it to God's work monetarily and say, well, yeah, I've done my job. I'm a giving person. No, Paul said, these people, why did they give out of their need? Why did they give not out of their abundance, but out of their poverty? Because they had done something first. The first in their giving was not some check or a dollar bill they put into the offering plate. Their first action was to give themselves to God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice. You know what that is? That is my gift to God. And someone says, well, why should I give myself to God? Because he gave himself to you. And it is the least it is my reasonable service to say, God, here I am. And we got Christian people that, well, I'll, I'll throw some money in the offering plate, but I'm not coming to visitation. Give yourself to the Lord. I'll put some money in the offering plate, but I'm not going to teach a Sunday school class or work on a bus route. Give yourself to the Lord. I'll put some money in the offering plate, but I'm not going to be a Christian witness. Why don't you give yourself to the Lord? God says, let me tell you what I'm interested in first. I'm not interested in your money. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I own the hills they stand on. I own the planets that are, that are spinning all around your little blue planet there. I own all of it. I don't need your money. Give me yourself. First, it's the first of giving. Turn to 1 Timothy, if you would, please. 1 Timothy chapter number 2. I give you, fourthly, the first of dependency. The first of dependency. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse number one, Paul writes to Timothy, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. First of all. Paul is writing to Timothy here about his dependence. Who are you relying on? This is something we all battle, is it not? I can get it done. I'm a capable person. I'm a push through. I'm going to force my way through. And Paul says to Timothy, young man in the ministry, Timothy, if you're ever going to do anything, if you're ever going to get anywhere, if you're ever going to accomplish anything for God in your life, then here's what you need to remember. I exhort you, therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Timothy, don't ever forget who you're dependent upon. God has given us a great work here. A great work. This church has been a beacon of hope and of the gospel message in this community for over 75 years. Tabernacle Christian School, beginning its 50th year. Praise God. The Lord has given us a great work to do here. And let me tell you, the people that have labored before us, their legacy deserves that we do the thing that they did, and that is not relying upon ourselves, not relying upon the, the work of the flesh, but our dependency is fixed solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm dependent upon Him. And by the way, prayer is a great indicator that I am dependent upon Him. 
If I find myself lacking prayer, you know what I find? I'm too self-sufficient. Because prayer dri- uh, my need drives me to prayer. When I see myself as insufficient, it drives me to prayer. And I say, Lord, I cannot do this, but I need your help. And Paul says, Timothy, first of all, remember where your dependency is. Well, hold your place here and turn to Mark chapter number 3. Jesus is speaking in, in Mark's gospel here. And he, he speaks to us about the key, this idea of dependence. Mark chapter number 3, and look at verse number 23. And he, Jesus, called unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Jesus is giving a a great uh, illustration here, a great parable about the strong man and, and the strong man's house. Who is this strong man? The strong man is Satan. He says, Satan cannot be divided against Satan. Uh, Let let me read this for you. I I got this from uh, John Phillips. John Phillips is one of my favorite people to read after in the Bible. Let me me tell you what what John Phillips has to say about this. Dealing with these verses. It all comes down to a question of naked power. Satan is the strong man. He has organized and kept his house, the sphere where he puts forth all of his power, organization, influence, and diabolical brilliance. And what a vast house it is. It embraces much of the unseen world, being of the enormous power of vast and malignant intelligence and of unimaginable wickedness own his sway. The world is part of his house, and it lies in the lap of the wicked one. So he keeps his goods. Mere men are virtually powerless against him. The disciples in themselves were powerless against him. They triumphed only when the Lord himself commissioned and empowered them. Jesus, by contrast, plundered the strong man's house at will. Even the most ferocious demons fled at his word. That only that could only mean that he was stronger than Satan and all his countless millions of evil spirits. He had been bound, excuse me, he bound the strong man. Satan, as strong as he was, was no match for the incarnate son of the living God. And he knew it. Who is the strong man? It is Satan. And Christ says the strong man must be bound before his house can be plundered. And I tell, can I tell you something? The strong man has lots of goods in this world. Every person outside of, of Christ is doing the lust of their father, the devil. He owns them. And we are given the task of going out into this world and through the ministries of this church and plundering the strong man's house. How are we going to do that? We are no match for the devil. We're no match for his power. And Jesus says, come in here close, disciples. Come in here close. And let me give you a little clue. The strong man must be bound. And when he is bound, His house can be plundered. 
I cannot do that, and neither can you. But the strong man can. There's a stronger man than the strong man. You see, he's one that overpowers him. And this gives us an idea of where our dependency must be. Paul said, Timothy, first of all, you get in your prayer closet and you talk to the stronger of the strong men. And you tell the stronger of the strong men, I cannot do this, but you can. This is the first of our dependency. I give you the last thing. Number five, turn with me to Matthew chapter number 22. Matthew 22, look at verse number 34, if you would, please. But when the Pharisees had heard that he, Christ, had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and the great commandment. I give to you finally the first of the commandments. This is the first of the commandments. Let me pause right here just for a moment and say to the young people, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 2 says, Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise. You see, it's not the first commandment, but it is God's first commandment with promise. And may I remind young people and some of us who are not quite so young anymore, this applies to everybody. Honoring our father and our mother. Can I say that honoring our father and mother does not stop when we leave the influence and the, and the rule of our father and mother. You see, I can, I can dishonor my parents by living a wicked lifestyle. I can dishonor my parents by not giving myself to Christ. I can dishonor my parents by moving some of the landmarks that they put in my life. This is not just for those living at home. And by the way, it is most especially for those living at home. Honor thy father and thy mother. And then he says, it's the first commandment with a promise. God's made some promises with this. What is the promise? That thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. You see, I've heard people say, well, that means if you obey your parents, you're going to live a long, long life. I've seen that to be untrue. There are certainly people that have been taken out of this world at an earlier age who were respectful to parents, and there are those who have been very disrespectful to their parents, who have lived in, in complete opposition to the godly influence of their parents, and they've lived a long life. So what's God speaking about? He says to his people that we're to honor our father and our mother, that our days may be long upon the land. You see, back in the day, there arose a generation that knew not God. That was the problem. And you know what God did? He took them off the land. Do you know what's happening in our nation? A once vibrant, free, liberty-loving people were having those liberties taken. 
We're no longer free as we used to be. And can I say to you that I'm convinced that a great deal of it has to do with the fact that God has promised, I'll keep you in the land, I will bless your nation, I will keep you free as long as young people you honor your father and your mother, and we're not. Young people in the home, no honoring of father and mother. Those of us who have left home, not honoring the influence and the Christian teachings of father and mother. Hey, don't miss it. It is the first commandment with God's promise. But there's the first commandment. And can I say to you that the first commandment in Christ's book trumps all other commandments? Because if you get this one, look here, if you get this one, the rest of them are easy. Take care of themselves. What is the first commandment? Jesus said, very simply, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Remember Revelation? John is writing to the churches and Christ says, write to Ephesus. What should I tell them, Lord? Oh, they're doing well, except they've left their first love. For so many years, I read that, and I read it wrong. Did you know that Jesus is not my first love? You know who my first love is? It's me. I loved me long before I ever loved Jesus. I loved sin long before I ever loved Jesus. I loved this world long before I ever loved Jesus. Look here. I am not his first love in that I loved him first. He is my first love in that he loved me first. Why do I even love him? John says, hey, in case you forgot, let me remind you. You love him because he first loved us. What is the first of the commandments? Hey, look here. Don't get weighted down in this whole Christian living thing and don't, don't, don't get weighted down under the do's and the don'ts, the do's and the don'ts. And by the way, we need the do's and we need the don'ts. But Jesus said, you get a hold of the first commandment. You just love God with your heart, your soul, your mind. You just love him completely. And by the way, you only love him completely in light of his love for you. Get back to the cross. Get back to Calvary. Get back to who you were before he found you. Get back to the fact that you don't have to go to hell for all of eternity. Get back to the fact that he loved you unconditionally. And when you see that, you say, I have to love him. I just have to love him. And look here, when I fall in love with Jesus, everything else is fine. New beginnings. I say to you, We only begin where God wants us to begin when we begin where God begins. May I ask you this morning, have you ever begun with salvation? Do you know in your soul that if you died this moment, you would go to be with God in heaven? And you you know that because you have believed the gospel. What are the first in your life? Look here. There's way too much gravel, there's way too much sand and water in my pitcher, in my jar. And I say, God, would you empty it all out and put first what needs to be first.
Thank you for listening to this message from Tabernacle Baptist Church. We pray that God has used His Word to speak to your heart today. If you'd like to learn more about the ministries of Tabernacle Baptist Church, you can go to our website, tabernaclehickory.org. That is tabernaclehickory.org. There you'll find additional resources that we pray God will use to be a help to you. If the Lord should lead you to partner with us or make a donation online, you'll find a link provided on the website at tabernaclehickory.org. May God bless you and thank you for listening.